NBA podcast. I'm your host Paul Headley. That's at Paul Headley NBA on Twitter. And returning to the show for the second time, not many people are silly enough to do that. Is Coach <laughs> ne- Coach Nick, or would you prefer Coach Nick or Monsignor B Ball Breakdown? What's the what's your preferred uh, title here? You know, Coach Nick is what everyone seems to call me, so it works pretty well. Okay, so uh, Coach has kindly came come on the podcast again. We're going to talk a little bit about the Warriors-Raptors game, which I only just realized Coach is putting together a, a video on uh, about the Warriors-Raptors game. We'll be getting into a little bit of the Raptors in general and the Celtics, hopefully later in the pod. But first of all, uh, Nick, obviously you've bro- broken down the entire game. What did you make of that Raptors kind of demolition of the Warriors? One of the things... I don't know if this was actually true. One of the things I actually sent you that I wanted to talk about was the broadcast team kept talking about how the Warriors seemed vulnerable inside the size and, you know, the the Raptors were kind of attacking, finding the matchup they liked and attacking it, which seemed to be the case whenever I was watching it myself, but I haven't went back and rewatched it. So what was your general take on that? And is it something that the Warriors need to be concerned about? You know, I, I didn't necessarily feel like it was the uh, like a uh, paint protection or rim protection was a real issue to me necessarily. Um, you know, the thing that jumped out to me was uh, first of all the fast break points. They were up. They were up twenty five to twelve, and twenty five is a lot of fast break points to have in a game. Um, and I suspect if I looked closely, the twelve points the Warriors got, I bet you a few of those came at the end when they were just down and they were just kind of quickly gutting out some shots. So I think it was worse than that. Um, the biggest concern the Warriors have, though, is their defense overall. It's 16th ranked when you're for their perennially in the top five. And uh, they are they seem to be confused about their switching and about their rotations, which is something, something they've never had an issue before. So if they don't clean that up, like Boogie doesn't help them with that necessarily. And so uh, if they don't clean that stuff up, and it's weird because usually you could say, well, it's new players or it's other guys that are still fitting in, but most of these guys have been there. And when you see Steph Curry and Kevin Durant screw up a pick-and-roll switch, you know, then, then you're like, what's going on here? How is that possible? And is it uh, – is it uh, so you th- for you it's mostly a focus thing? It's not a schematic thing? It's just player execution? Yeah, I mean, definitely execution for sure. I also think that in the bigger picture, Kevin Durant just looks annoyed. He looks like he doesn't want to be there. I mean, I did a clip, and I showed it on Twitter, and I showed it in the video, where literally Kevon Looney has to shove him with two hands to get in proper position, and then he still doesn't quite move, and then gets beaten right away by Kyle Lowry to the baseline. So, you know, that kind of stuff, you're looking at him walking around out there, and it's like he he's already had an issue with Draymond Green. We saw that happen earlier this year. And, uh, and we've seen him sort of mouth, if I could be a, a lip reader, it sounded like he was like, I'm out of here, is what he was saying. So um, it, it's, it's probably a concern, but then again, they are so good that finally when the intensity of the playoffs hits them, they will snap into some mode. We see the Cleveland Cavaliers did that every year to, to, to the frustration of every coach out there, um, even though they weren't even as nearly as good as the Warriors. But the Warriors should be able to do that. Um, but you never know. They almost got beat. 
uh, in, game, in seven games against the Rockets. Very, very narrow uh, escape there. And, you know, every game that goes by in the playoffs and every year that goes by, that's just more and more likely they're going to lose. There, yeah, there a lot of great points there and a lot of great kind of long-term picture uh, ideas and that. The, like the first one, I, I actually I haven't really talked about this in a podcast or made the comparison anywhere. It's almost like in an obscene or absurd way, Kevin Durant is getting the Kevin Love or Chris Bosh treatment, where in not 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 up like but like not in terms of the quality of the players. I'm not crazy, but what I'm saying is that when everything's clicking and everything's going right, it's Steph Curry and Steph Curry gets all the credit, and when it's not going right. He usually seems to take the brunt of the blame, or 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 Coach Kerr, or whatever. So, it's I can understand his frustration because he's like I'm a generational player. Uh, like he put up what four forty point games in a row and was just playing out of his mind, and then, and then it's it's just he's back into this weird sphere of never really getting the credit that he deserves and getting all the blame. So I can understand that where he might be getting frustrated with that. And, I, and as a lot of people have pointed out, this is not an original sentiment on my part, but that the Warriors' offense is, is it's schemed towards Steph Curry and towards extenuating what he does well and not necessarily built around Kevin Durant. So, You know, I, I hear that a lot, and I think you made a really great point because it's sort of true. He gets the blame, and then Steph gets all the credit. Um but the thing with, with it, he's never really embraced the offense. And it's frustrating to hear that it's not built for him. It's like, it, it's, 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 of course it's built for him. If he wants to have it built for him, it will be built for him. If he wants to uh, attack the way they want him to attack, and if he moves in the offense the way they want him to move, because there's a lot of organic you know, motion in it where you have opportunities to do what you want to do based on how you operate, which is sort of a, a thing that the triangle, that Coach Kurtz from the triangle. And so... He could attack off the catch and then set better screens and, and cut differently and better and, and actually get the easiest shots of his career if he wanted to. Uh, and that's what I think I've noticed recently is that he just his default, the ISO default and tough shots are just like the, what he just seems to gravitate towards. Uh, but there isn't, there isn't a tough shot anywhere inside of about 18 feet for him. That's the thing, right? Anything inside of there, no matter how tight you are on him as a defender, it, it won't matter. He's going to pretty much score over you. So that is the, the uh, burden I guess he has is that you know he can do that whenever he wants. But yet, uh, if he just let the offense work a little bit more for him, uh, he would shoot a better percentage. Everything would work better. You know, maybe Who knows? Maybe he would finally get that credit. It's kind of like the I, yeah, I get what you're saying completely, and I guess it, it is that you know a willingness to cut and a willingness to maybe come off screens and those different things that the Warriors do well, and staff's always been so willing. It's almost like uh, it's almost like the point guard that comes up through the high school and college ranks, who's like a just a nuclear athlete and has never really had to work. On, I'm not obviously Kevin Durant's an incredibly skilled player, but being able to get that shot whenever he wants. As you say, it's it's a it's a blessing and a curse. Where you know maybe he's just never had to fight for the shots the way a guy of curry stature maybe has. Um, but yeah, from we've talked a lot about the Warriors. Let's kind of flip it over to uh, the Raptors, I guess, who are you know currently twenty three and seven. Um, Kawhi, I didn't even real. I knew he'd missed some games. He's missed eight of their thirty games so far. And you know Kyle Lowry was struggling for a while, and they're still you know, and they've been a few players have been dinged up, but they're still winning games, right? 
and yeah, still look they really are. good. They, they look overwhelming at times. And without Kawhi Leonard and on a second of a back-to-back, uh, playing in L.A. and then playing in Oakland the next night, uh, blew them both out. I mean, it was a real shocker to me on that end. I think everyone was shocked. I think the, most, the person who was most shocked are anybody in the Warriors because I think they assumed they'd come in and conk out in the third quarter and they'd, they'd you know, go on to win. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. is I, I looked at almost every miss the Warriors had. They went 6-for-26 from the three-point line because I was like, well, okay, was this the, was this the Raptors you know, locking them down and contesting every shot and making it so hard? And to be honest with you, that it was not the case at all. They they got so many open looks to wide open looks that they just bricked. It was incredible. So um, amazingly enough, the Raptors fans haven't come at me yet in the comments. Maybe they haven't quite processed what I said in that section because, you know, they're all like, you know, this is what happens on Twitter all the time with me and certain players too, where like he locked them up in that game, and I'm like, all right. So I go back and I look through that game. I watch 50 possessions, and it's like it's the worst defense of all time. He just missed a bunch of open shots. It's like that's not locking anybody up. So um, that's not what happened with the, with the Raptors. The Raptors were able to push the ball, and they uh, they had such great athletes, and they could run. And then Lowry, again, had a second good game after a string of terrible games. And when he is doing that, and he isos, and he can hit long twos and then get uh, assists off of those drives. And for a guy who's my size, I still can't believe he gets any of his shots off in the paint. Uh, they are they are really good, and it's good. It's it's completely frightening to think that you can add Kawhi Leonard to that performance. Who, you know, if the Raptors maintain their uh, winning percentage, should be MVP or second in the MVP voting. Yeah, the I mean, I think that I probably wouldn't have Kawhi in the in my unofficial Paul Headley ballot that everyone is concerned about. I probably wouldn't have him in the com- the quote-unquote conversation just yet because of the missed games. But as you said, if he gets yeah. to... If he gets to... That, I usually that magic number would be 70, maybe. Uh, then he absolutely could be the could be the, the, the MVP. I was just looking because I was, I was curious. I couldn't remember just offhand how... Um, OG Ananobi was because I knew he was kind of he was battling some injuries and stuff. Even a guy as good as OG, and you know, a lot of people had said, you know, if this team's gonna maybe hit their ceiling this this season, he's gonna take a big step forward. He's only averaging like eight points a game, and his three point shooting's regressed. And they've just got it's kind of like a more extreme version of the Clippers, only with an actual superstar at the head, where they yeah. just go down the line. They've just got so many quality players. The would you be at Would you be at all concerned with you know when they get to the playoffs that a lot of times and I I, I can't remember if I've ever heard your take on this before. A lot of people kind of hypothesize that at the highest levels of the playoffs, if you are a small guard, it there's a some diminishing returns in terms of how effective you can be at the very highest level. Would you have any concerns with Kyle Lowry in that regard? In the, in the oh yeah, right. I mean, I mean, listen. There is proof, right, to what you're saying. It's certainly, or I don't know if it's proof of what you're saying, but certainly the facts remain that he has struggled. That he hasn't been able to produce as much as he has in the in the regular season in the playoffs. Usually, that said, what he's producing this year is so much less, at least on the scoring side. That maybe that's going to be the solution. Is that he'll be able to match what he's doing now, which is 14 points a game versus 18, 19, and he's leading leading the league in assists. So that is something I think that he should be able to sustain. And then as far as Anunoby is concerned, you know, it's like when you when you're starting and you're playing all these minutes, and then 
Kawhi Leonard comes in and takes your job, you know, it's going to be an, adjust, an adjustment period. He looks like he's certainly struggling to find a rhythm out there, but he is good. They know he's got a lot of experience uh, to, to play that. That will come back. He will help them. He will win or play instrumentally in a, in a key playoff game for them. I have no doubt that will help them win a game. The, uh, we couldn't kind of finish up a Raptor segment without talking about Pascal Siakam. Uh, is he the most or improved? Fred or Fred Van Vliet. Or Fred great too, yeah. Uh, it, is Pascal Siakam, do you, the most improved player in the league? Have you really thought about it that much? Or? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I haven't scanned everybody other who else would be eligible. Because like, even people were talking about, like, well, can Derek Rose win that award? And, and like, like maybe. He, uh, you know what? It, actually, it's not. He's not improved. He's most recovered or whatever you call that. But, um yeah, you have to put him at the top of the list without question. I mean, here's a guy now who's shooting about league average, I mean, you know, a couple of threes a game, not high volume, but certainly uh, he's now a threat where they have to shade over to him a little bit more to give more spacing. He handles the ball like a guard. He can drive to the basket like a, like a shooting guard. And the dude's like, what, like 6'10 or something yeah, six, like that? 6'9, 6'10, yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure his wingspan is 7-something. So... Um, this guy is going to get paid a lot of money without question uh, this summer. Uh, everyone's going to want him to play uh, the power forwards in, in probably even center role. I, I bet you in five years he's a, he's a legit center. And, um, and, and you know what he's doing for them is extremely valuable, and I don't think he gets enough credit. It, every once in a while, it, it always, I always love it when players make me do this, where he'll be making a move and I'll go, oh, no, he can't. He can't do that, and then he'll like he'll put up this like soft finish with his off hand, or like he'll he's got that beautiful spin move, and and he's just he's been incredible. I definitely would be up there for most improved. Oh yeah, and by the way, I had a clip in my video today where I, he went full speed right at um, like Dray, uh, Draymond or Kevin Durant, I think, in the open court, and still managed to softly put it up off the glass. I, I think it even got goaltended, and it still went in. So. Yeah, this guy's got touch at a high speed and velocity, which is amazing. And uh, and one more thing about the Raptors, though, is you have to uh, keep your eye on the pairing of Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry because that's uh, – I looked at the uh, two-man lineup data today. There's something like plus 14, I think, around there. Uh, I haven't looked what Danny Green's pairing is with Kyle Lowry, but there's no question in my mind – that they're at their best when they have Fred Van Vliet and, and Kyle Lowry out there together. And that's going to be uh, a lineup you should see with, uh, you know, Serge at the center position, which they've been waiting for him all these years to just play it. And uh, I don't I don't see how they lose in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, before, uh, I actually tweeted out, it was half a joke, half the truth. Um, I was watching Serge, Serge Ibaka, and uh, I said, if you paired Serge Ibaka and DeMontis Savonis together in one lineup, I feel like the team's effective field goal percentage would be like 93%. Because I feel like all, every time I've watched both of those guys, they've just been hitting everything in sight. The, the Raptors, and, and the, to the lineups, the two-man lineups, I think I, the last time I looked at it, it was basically every two-man lineup they had was like plus 13 or something crazy. Like they've just... They've just been playing so well. From a team that's kind of been playing really well all season to a team that m might be coming good or might, might be a bit of fool's gold and we, we don't really know, is the Boston Celtics who are on a seven-game winning streak against an admittedly less than you know tough schedule. They've had a few cushy games against the Bulls and uh, 
who else were they playing? Sorry. Cavs. Yeah, Bulls and Cavs, and yeah, I don't even, I don't even the Knicks. I don't know whether we should put the Wizards in there as a cushy game. They're like, maybe they it are. It didn't seem like it when they played them last yeah, night. Yeah, but the then you you can only as the old saying goes, you can only beat who's in front of you. The offense does look better somewhat. They've been hitting shots. Uh, what do you actually think of the the Celtics? Right now, do you think they have righted the ship in terms of that offense? What's going on here? Yeah, I think that, um, well, one key thing that seems to happen as far as lineups go is that Jalen Brown has gone on the bench. And I did a video on what was wrong with the Celtics uh, three three weeks ago, and that was one of my big suggestions. And then I guess they somebody watched it or whatever, they, they took that suggestion because what I felt like they needed to do was get more of a hierarchy on offense. I and mean, who is the king, who is the alpha, and they go from there. And, you know, it's just it, – it's not necessarily a numbers thing for me when I say this, but it just feels – it feels to me watching it that when Kyrie Irving is the lead guard who's, who's aggressively scoring, that is when they're at their best. And I don't know if Kyrie has it in him to do that 100 percent of the time, but if he, if he was that guy who's scoring 27 a game and has that mentality to do that, then everything else opens up for everybody. So we saw that last night when he was just, you know, put him on his back and just drained some shots that were just ridiculous. Um, he, I wonder if he feels like, you know what, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of pressure. I don't know if I can handle that. Or if he goes, yeah, that was great. I love it. Let's do that some, every night. It's not easy to do. Uh, but if they can figure that out, uh, then they should be in much better shape. Uh, to, to at least move up where they are now, which is, you know, they're getting up there on the top of the Eastern Conference again. I mean, like, even if you, to your point, when that, that uh, year where Isaiah Thomas went nuclear, supernova, insert whatever hyperbolic adjective you want, you know, that they had a, I believe they had a, the ninth-ranked offense, despite the fact they did not have top-ten offensive talent around him, because mm-hmm. he just, as you say, he was absorbed in so much uh, of the, the defense's uh attention and just opening things up for every everyone else one thing i've never really understood about Kyrie is he shoots pull up threes as well as anyone in the league but he's not he averages about three attempts per game the last time i i looked and i don't know why he doesn't shoot more of them and some like people have made the point as to why the celtics don't set more high screens so that he can kind of do that damian lillard thing where he just comes off the high screen and immediately into a pull up three because I think that would open up some. Because then obviously either either he gets the open pull up three or the defense covers it and it opens up more opportunities elsewhere. So I've never really understood that. But as far as the the Celtics going forward, do you think that this offensive improvement is for real? Is it just hitting shots against bad teams? I mean, I think it's a it's a mixture of both because like Tatum has been really frustrating for me to watch as well. Where we looked like he was going to be a an all star and a guy that could score at will, and he he really seems to me to have trouble getting by people. And now you have a guy like that is not really kind of getting gr- great shots, getting like step back twenty footers, and uh, and that's an issue. You know, it's hard, especially in the playoffs. Um, you know, Morris has been terrific, so that's been helpful. And, and so, and speaking of the, the sample size and what they're doing, I just looked at the at the, uh, the numbers here, and you know, if you look at their offensive rating for the last ten games, they're number one, and by a nice margin, by about three points, a little over three points uh, on the offensive rating point is whatever you know, whatever you call that. But then you go to nine games, and they're like number one by like six over six points, and you go to the last eight games, and now they're like seven points better than anybody else. So. 
it's like whatever they're doing right now, they're on a tear. You can't ignore like a seven, eight game sample. That's, that's significant. That's 10% of the season or whatever it is. So um, I think that they're getting somewhere. And that's the beauty of the NBA is that there's always a stretch of your schedule where you can kind of get a lot of teams that are easier to play against, or some of them at least in that stretch, and, and prove that they're going to they're doing well. So there's definitely something there. Uh, Brad Stevens' coach team, in theory, to my mind, with this kind of team, should be the top five offense overall anyway. So that's where they should end up at the end of the year. And it, like to your point, it's uh, if you look over the course of a season, there's a reason why we look at point differential as indicative of a quality team. Because, of course, a really good team's going to blow out a bunch of bad teams and that's going to beef up your point differential, but that's what good teams do. You beat the breaks right. off the teams that you're supposed to beat, you know. And, and your, really quickly on that one, yeah. the last eight games, their net rating, their, the, the point differential, or based on 100 possessions, is plus 18.7. The next team behind them is plus 9.5 so no one's yeah. even close and by the way if your net rating is 10 then that's usually what leads the league over the course of the season so uh, i think i got you know I'm, I'm pretty sure it's around there so um you know they're talking about um, some serious numbers there for, for so for sure and also just to answer the question about why Kyrie doesn't get more of those sort of pick and roll downhill pull-ups for three you know a lot of what the offense feels like to me on the celtics is uh, sort of side to side motion, and then when the when the uh, screen comes, it's t- it tends to be like more in the wing, out of some sort of handoff pistol action. So it's they, they just, the, the the way their offense runs itself is sort of like you're not going to see a ton of Kyrie holding his fist up at the top of the key, waiting for you know uh, Horford to come out and ball screen, and they they spread and go. And that's a choice, and I think you get a better shot when you do do what they're doing. But what you might lose out on is a little bit of that you know pull up stuff off of the pick and roll. Yeah. Uh, the I'm um, sorry I forgot to make the point earlier because you kind of you were talking about the difference it's made kind of ch- changing up that starting lineup the when it, like the original starting lineup you know what with that every had everyone kind of so excited Horford Hayward Irving Brown and Tatum was a minus three point five on the season or is a minus three point five on the season sub sub Marcus Morris and Marcus Smart in it's plus twelve point eight. Which is yeah. Yeah, that's a phenomenal difference, and there does seem to be that bit a little bit of toughness, and as you said, a little bit more of a hierarchy, where kind of everyone has got more defined roles. If anyone's wondering why I'm starting to to speak on hyperdrive, Vietnamese coffee is like the strongest coffee in the entire world. So I've all of a sudden got this massive you rush. Have new, you have a new sponsor for the podcast. Yeah, we've got uh, the coffee shop downstairs. I'm sure they'll be they'll be loving to, to sponsor it. Uh, but one more thing before we uh, wrap this thing up, Nick. Did you obviously there was this? There's been this uh, kind of disarray with the Bulls. And, you know, Jim Boylan t- took over from Fred Hoiberg, uh, the classic, you know, go from one style of coach to let's go 100 miles the opposite and from the he's your best friend to the strict disciplinarian and that seems to have gone a little bit awry and there's mutinies and there's all this other stuff going on. What's your, what's your take on what's going on with the Bulls? Well, you know, I spent a lot of time dealing with communication skills with coaches and trying to help and refine and and, and and mainly because of the mistakes that I've made. And even though I've made them at, the, let's say, the high school level or working with other guys at different levels that are above that uh, individually, uh, you know, there are certainly no shortage of people that I've spent, spent time with and interacted with and learned from and studied about that. So 
the bottom line is whatever you want to say about the way Boylan took over the team and how he wanted to do it, the outcome is the worst possible outcome you could imagine. Probably to the point where I maybe Gar Packs were thinking like maybe we should just get rid of him now. I, I don't know if that was a thought process, but it could have been because it was it was that bad. Now, like I'll give you an example. When I took over a high school program here and from another coach, I don't think I appreciated that he was sort of popular, even though they didn't win a lot and they weren't, you know, they weren't great. So I was like running these drills and, and like the, the basic fundamentals just simply were not known to these players that had played for the guy. And I had said, like, what did you guys do last year? Like, didn't he teach you anything? And what I, did, you know, that was a mistake. I, I lost my players for a while because they liked the other coach and he was popular and I was disparaging him. So. You heard what Boylan said in the press, which was all underhanded, you know, stuff about clearly about Hoiberg not doing stuff about like communicating with stars, whatever he was trying to say. And it just was all not classy, I suppose could be the word or whatever it is. And um, and then, yeah, to threaten these, um, you know, these pros with doing suicides and doing whatever else they're doing. It's just a, a huge mistake. And if you want to do a sort of a gradual thing to kind of turn things around, that's great. They're incentivized to lose this year. So I don't even understand why that pressure on him was to turn everything around in one day was there anyway. So, um, you know, it's a big F on, on my grading scale right now. And uh, he, he might not ever get this team back on his side. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone – I don't think anyone's coming out of this looking good. I think – the players don't look particularly good because, again, maybe this is just me in that if you're unhappy with what the coach is doing, go go to the practices, go do whatever. Don't don't spit the dummy and be messaging after one week saying, you know, go either go maybe maybe the look maybe the players did go to him and they did voice their concerns and he told them to go f themselves. I don't know. I don't really know that detail. But it seems like the players didn't handle it particularly well. You know, they seem to be conducting themselves like superstars when they're a losing basketball team. And, like, obviously, Zach Levine and Jabari Parker, their defensive effort is particularly atrocious a lot of the times. So I don't think they have handled the great boiling, as you just illustrated perfectly, seems to have handled it horribly. I don't know if it's one of those things where everything that I've heard about him, he's been waiting for this chance for a long time. And I can maybe understand his impetuousness to just go right, you know, I'm going to seize control of this and, and do what he's doing. But it seems like from management on down, this is just one big, one big, uh, yeah. one big cluster. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't want to make it seem like the the, uh, the players are uh, you know immune from from criticism as well because yeah they laid down and they did not perform for him. Um, I don't know, but there are times when you hear a lot of coaches from every on every level say, well, he doesn't want to, you know, he's not coachable, and it's like no, he, you simply haven't figured out how to communicate with him to, to, to be coachable because I, I, I still I want to believe that there's a way to reach everybody. Now, he had been there as an assistant for several years, so he should have already had some relationship, and that's probably maybe what he was you know kind of banking on is that he already knew these guys and whatever. But, um, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the problem he's going to have now is that they've fractured this relationship and it's like how do you ever in the in the grind of an NBA season it's in travel and all that stuff ever like repair that you know before it's the season's over um, and again he probably was empowered by uh, the front office to like go in there and you know really give him hell 
But um, it's just, uh, he learned. I'm sure he learned, and he probably, I hope he would think he wouldn't do that again. Uh, and as you said, they're not incentivized to, to win this season anyway, so maybe it'll be a good thing, all this dysfunction. But uh, Yeah, you, you know, that would be an evil genius kind of thing, but um, but man, there's a lot of, there's easier ways just to do that too. Like, you know, just sit marketing on the every other game or whatever you know uh by the way i will do want to shout out that it's not like marketing and lopez were the two guys who were the adults in the room and we're trying to tell the other players to like stop this nonsense and we have to go to practice we can't just skip whatever that you know whole thing was so kudos to them i mean marketing is a you know a young player who is from a different country and could easily sort of feel like i i can't it's not my place and he did so that was nice to hear him do that and i i have huge hopes for him and huge hopes for Wendell Carter Jr. and those are the guys that should be built, should be building around anyway. Yeah, I think um, I think long term. Sorry, don't want to get into the Bulls minutiae, but I think long term, I completely agree that it's marketing and it's and it's Wendell Carter. I think Zach Levine's ultimate destiny to me is as a sixth man, which is, sounds like a cop out because every kind of gunner you know who doesn't really play defense and maybe couldn't handle a lead role everyone always says oh yeah just bring him off the bench but I do think that's his ultimate destiny because he is a great kind of off the dribble shooter and he can't get buckets but yeah I didn't even realize that about marketing and and Lopez it doesn't surprise me but yeah the Bulls we'll see what happens with them coach Nick thanks very much for coming on the podcast guys I said this at the end of every episode it really helps if you could review subscribe Give me any feedback, positive or negative. I don't care. I'm very, very thick-skinned, unlike yeah. unlike the Bulls players, clearly. Uh, but Nick, uh, your your new video on the the Warriors and the Raptors, I'm assuming, is going to be out by the time this podcast drops tomorrow. It is. It is already up and already being watched and discussed. So okay. head over to B-Ball Breakdown and check that out too. Nick, thanks very much for coming on, guys. I will uh, be in your ears next week.